0: Once you have your winner, you can just scale that thing. You can let it ride for
1: years. How much does it cost to acquire a client? What's a client worth? All those things, your win rate, your fall off rate, helps you create the strategy and understand how much capital you can actually deploy instead of just guessing like, oh, I think is working. The longer you are willing
0: to delay gratification and take the profits that your law firm is making and reinvest them into expansion, that is going to pay itself over.
1: Welcome to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io, the legal marketing company the best firms hire when they want the rankings, traffic, and cases other marketing agencies can't deliver. Each week, you get insights and wisdom from some of the best in the industry. Hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. All right, let's dive in. The growth at Top Dog Law is nothing short of explosive. In just five years, CEO James Helm has taken his Philadelphia-based firm nationwide and has quickly gained the notoriety that takes others decades to accomplish. Already in the 99th percentile of mass advertising firms, Top Dog Law fields thousands of calls monthly, so many that James recently opened an in-house intake department and adds around 10 new staff each month to meet demand. A master of advertising and business development, James does not view other firms as competition. James prefers to see other firms, including the other nationwide powerhouses, as collaborators. The top dog mindset frames nearly every personal injury law firm as a potential strategic ally. This partnership philosophy underpins his meteoric rise. When top dog succeeds, so do other firms in his network. Today, James lifts the veil on one of the most successful advertising firms in the nation. He reveals that data drives growth, why creativity overcomes budget constraints, and the advantages of leaning into specialization. He also explains how to maintain strong relationships with referral partners. Spoiler alert, it all comes back to data. The Top Dog Law empire was not built overnight. His journey began like so many fresh out of law school as an unknown with a lot of ambition. Get ready for part one of two with James Helm of Top Dog Law. The current alpha dog of legal advertising ready to lead the pack. Here's James Helm, CEO of Top Dog Law.
0: I think I want to uh, tell everybody first and foremost, just how nervous I was calling our law firm Top Dog Law. I still remember I went to my first ever legal conference and I'm checking in at the check-in table and I'm a little intimidated just even kind of walking in. I don't know what to expect. I'm 28 years old in a room full of like 50, 60 year old, very wealthy, established lawyers. Felt like I kind of didn't deserve to be in the room and I get up to the table and there's this nice older lady who's checking people in. And right as I'm checking in, I'm like, uh, James from Top Dog Law. And I still remember these two lawyers next to me and the look on their face when I said Top Dog Law. They were like, ha! like there was this scoff, right? And um, uh, at the time, you know, I, I was like ashamed I felt, but uh, over time and as we've grown the Top Dog brand, I look back and think about how contrarian it was to go with a branded name like that. And given that it's so easy to say, easy to spell, easy to remember, I think a large part of our success is due to the name.
1: Yeah, and just just massive brand recognition and and the things you're doing. And it's just so memorable. Even your taglines, you know, Top Dog gets you top dollar. I love everything about it. You know, when you were thinking about brand. Did it start with the name? Is is that where it started? How, how do you think about brand and being distinctive in the market?
0: So I think lawyers have traditionally been very bad at branding their businesses. I mean, every other industry has names that are easy to say, easy to spell, easy to remember. Whereas law firms, the brand wasn't the focus. The brand was basically a bunch of last names that are often hard to spell, hard to remember, and the question becomes, who's your lawyer? Uh, uh uh I I I don't know, I could try to find their business card whereas if your lawyer's top dog, it's like, "Oh, top dog. Go to topdoglaw.com," you know? And how many more client referrals are you going to get? And we all know client referrals are the best kind of referrals. Why? Cuz they're free, right? And so I got into selling lawyer marketing. And um, when I did that, there were very few law firms that were using branded names. There was one I found out in Texas called Law Boss. And I first remember thinking, like, this guy calls himself Law Boss. That's the most egotistical thing in the world. That's crazy. And I thought about that idea and thought about that idea and thought about that idea. And I'm like, there's something to this. I'm like, he's probably getting so many more clients than the law firm with five or six last names. Why? Because word of mouth, it just spreads. It's easy to say, easy to spell, easy to remember.
1: I couldn't agree more. It really just stands out. It is easier to say. You know, I use that one example because I have problems pronouncing it. And there's times where I interview guests on the show where I have to go like watch their YouTube video several times just to say their name right. And that's a
0: problem because I'm just like a normal consumer. It's crazy. And the problem I think a lot of law firms have is whether you would ever change your brand name, right? Because once you've built your firm around a certain name, it then becomes very, very challenging to reevaluate it. And when I created Top Dog, it was 2019. So the idea of a brand name was starting to spread. Prior to that, you go to 2010, 2005, 2000, there were barely any law firms that were doing mass marketing, let alone doing branded names. It's kind of a new concept. And as it's evolved into seeing all the social media lawyers start to develop, the brand name has definitely gotten more popular for law firms over the last couple of years. And I think it's a good idea.
1: Yeah, 1000%. And you know, one of the things I want to talk about is you are a national firm now that comes over time, but that comes with with capital. So you've got the brand, but now you got to get the attention, right? So there's different types of scale capital. There's free cash flow from operations. You know, you can take debt on in the balance sheet. You can take on some partners. Maybe you could just talk to me a little bit about how you think in terms of capital and how you're going to budget for marketing and just those types of
0: aspects. I think every law firm, even the firms that are now national, started local, right? Like every law firm whether it's Morgan & Morgan, Lerner & Rowe, Shannara, whoever, right? They all started in one market and they made their money growing that market. The chance then becomes, okay, now that I've established myself as either the market leader in this city or in the top two or three uh, law firms in this city, can I take my brand that I've built here and can I duplicate that in other new markets. And the way you do that is you take the profits that you've made in the first market and you reinvest them in other markets. I think John Morgan has this famous story about how he got into a dispute with his original partners because he wanted to basically roll all of the money that the company had made into new markets and they wanted to put it in their pocket. And it comes back to this like Warren Buffett idea of delayed gratification. The longer you are willing to delay gratification and take the profits that your law firm is making and reinvest them into expansion, either in your market, or once you feel like you've hit a saturation point in your market, or there's a diminishing return in your market, you take that leap and go into a second market that is going to pay itself over. And what we've tried to do at Top Dog is take our initial Um, case settlements from 2019, 2020, when we first started the firm, and basically take all the money we've made and roll that out into new markets. And once we were able to prove that that concept worked, we were able to then think about debt and partner law firm relationships and other types of strategies to help us get more access to capital faster.
1: Yeah so I really want to lean into that James and and you've been vocal about this you're a different type of law firm right you have you you're a referral law firm you work with strategic partners how does your model play into that because you are a referral practice can you spend more to originate a case versus doing it in house versus you know a litigating type firm you know can you spend a 30 40% in your marketing versus maybe other firms can only spend 20% what about the budget itself
0: The decision to move to more of an advertising and referral business was one that um, took a while for me to make. We still keep a small amount of cases in Pennsylvania where we were first based, but we've largely gone into new markets um, with the idea of partnering up with other law firms. And it comes down to the, the unit economics. So in most businesses, right, step out of legal for a second. You look at, okay, what's your gross margin, meaning like what? do you get on average for a settlement fee versus what's your cost of goods sold? And in the legal business, we're one of the luckiest people out there because we have no cost of goods sold. It costs us nothing. It's, it's service fees. Um, now there are case costs, obviously, but you think about, okay, whether your average settlement, say you're a car accident law firm that does a couple hundred cases per month, your average settlement, and I love Chad Dudley's Talks about this on, on your podcast and elsewhere, basically explaining, you know, if you're if you're doing under ten thousand dollars on average for a car accident settlement, you got some some work to do. If you're doing between you know ten and fifteen thousand, you're doing okay. If you're doing like $20, 25000 um, in terms of gross attorneys' fees on soft tissue and you know, kind of more general car wrecks. You're doing a great job maximizing the value of the cases. And so you should know your average fee, right? And then when you look at your average fee, you're like, okay, well, what does it cost me to acquire a customer? How long do the customers last? What's the time on desk, right? Like from the day I acquire them, how long do they sit on my desk until I get that average fee? And then what percentage of them fall off, right? What percentage of them result in no revenue? And once you've really gotten clear about your data on what does it cost to acquire a client, how long is the duration that they're on your desk, and what's that fall off percentage, you can start to look at your average fee and say, Oh, I can get this aggressive trying to spend money to acquire new customers, and I can do it profitably. And what we've done is we've looked at different debt options and done some financial modeling to see, okay even if we're borrowing a little bit of money and paying interest on that money as long as we can manage the duration risk which you can in a car accident in mass torts it becomes really difficult but in a car accident you could say okay you know i know at the longest this is going to take 4 years most of my cases are going to take you know if you're settling a pre-suit a year if you're filing suit on a lot of cases maybe that's 26 months as long as you can manage that duration risk you can start to see okay I can reinvest in new cases profitably. And the problem that a lot of law firms run into, traditional law firms, is they can't just reinvest in new case acquisition because of their operational capacity, right? They can't do the cases. Why? Because they don't have the intake staff. They don't have the paralegals. They don't have the lawyers. All of those different parts of the firm need to grow at the same time to be able to grow in capacity. What we've been able to do, which has been you know, very helpful for us, is partner with law firms across the country that have that capacity. And so that's allowed us to scale in a way that we couldn't if we were doing all the cases ourselves.
1: Thank you for sharing all that. It's, it's really intriguing. I didn't think about the capacity issues and trying to forecast that and underhiring and overhiring and all those components that go into just the delivery perspective. The other thing too is you know, when you partner, it's not just a referral type partnership. In some situations, because you have a proven model, they've been able to help introduce capital because they're going to be getting, you know, a percentage of the case. So, so talk about that, because I really think that's different. A lot of attorneys are leaning on free cash flow from operations or, or debt, whether they're using a partner. Uh, you know, there's many of these debt based companies. Versus, like, hey, you're going to your referral partner because you're, you're actually, it, it is a true partnership because they're generating profit off of your referral and they want you to more originate more cases. So maybe speak to that and uh, in that capacity.
0: So I think one of the differences with us uh, is that we're putting up our own money. It's either all of our own money or we're putting up half the money and our our partner firm is putting up half the money. And so it's a lot of it's a lot different asking them to go in on this joint venture with us than it is with the marketing company. Where traditionally a marketing company can come to you, they can have good referrals, um, they can have a great reputation in the industry. Like I think Rankings has like the best reputation, right? You. But at the end of the day, you're still asking them to put up money for services. And with us, because of the way the model is structured, it's like, we get to put up the money or ask them to put up half the money. And so the ask is like, I'm putting my skin in this too, right? Like if this fails, I'm out the money. So why would I do this? If I thought this was an unprofitable idea, I would only do it in the event that I think this can be a money-making activity for you and a money-making activity for us. And, um, the thing that I care about, right, because I think there's this um, spectrum, there's the law firms, like I would put us in this category that are very, very focused on the advertising side, I'd like to think we're one of the best at it, we spend all of our time doing this, versus the firms that are the opposite side of the spectrum where they are top 1%, top 2% trial lawyers, or if they run more of a big kind of car accident style law firm, they're really, really good at maximizing the case value, getting that you know 20K average fee or 25K average fee. But it's hard, I've learned over time, to run the full gamut, right? To be an amazing advertiser, to maximize your car accidents for 25,000 average gross fee, and to be able to take those top 5% of your cases where you're getting that $8 million, $10 million, $15 million settlement, and you have those lawyers that can litigate those catastrophic injury cases in-house. There's very few firms across the spectrum that can do all of those things.
1: Yeah, and I, I like that explanation, and I think you said something along the lines of run your own race, don't stress about the competition, so on that quote from you, how do you think about a referral partner that could then take their profit and then to go do a media buy or buy some billboards in the same market that you're advertising, do you think of them as competition? Do you think it's a rising tide situation where now you're just blocking out everyone else? How do you think about that situation where they could take the profit that you're sending them and then advertise against you?
0: I think generally in our industry, we have too big of a focus on our competitors in the market I mean, nobody has 1% market share. I mean, Morgan & Morgan is multiples bigger than every other law firm in the country. We are so fragmented as an industry, as a plaintiff's bar. A large number of the cases are getting signed by lead generation companies that many lawyers are not even thinking of as their competition, and yet they're spending all this time, energy, effort. And look, I'm not perfect. I did this too, right? It's like spending all this time, energy, effort, thinking about what my competitors are doing and who got this billboard and who's doing what. And it's like, it really just doesn't matter that much. And we've tried to position ourselves as allies of law firms. You know, if if you're a uh, medical malpractice law firm, we'd love to partner with you. We have great partnerships nas- nationally for medical malpractice or birth injury. If you're a firm that does car accidents in so and so state, I'd love to see how we can work together. And I won't view you doing your own advertising separate to Top Dog as some type of a threat. I'm simply looking at it through the lens of the money that we're investing. And the money that you're investing, are we making a return on that invested capital? And outside of that, I hope you have tremendous success. It's actually been really cool, Chris, getting to see our law firm partners grow and add staff and um, have this explosive uh, growth and be able to be like, hey, like working with Top Dog was a large part of how we've grown our firm from doing $10 million to $18 million in one year or whatever it is. And I didn't think I'd get that much joy out of it, but the relationships I've made with different law firm owners across the country has actually been really satisfying.
1: National advertising firms like Top Dog Law originate leads and refer them downstream to local partner law firms best equipped to handle the cases. We've spoken with local firms on this show about the benefits of these partnerships, especially when they're getting started early today we flip the script looking from the national advertisers viewpoint. How can local firms nurture the relationship and keep the referrer happy? James outlines key strategies for maintaining strong bonds and ensuring the case referrals keep flowing.
0: I am all for our partners being diversified. I am all for them having other referral sources. I am all for them Getting their own cases, whether that's using a great SEO vendor like you, or doing PPC, or even if they want to do mass advertising, you know we're big partners with uh, Alex Shannara across multiple markets, and they do a ton of their own branding and billboards and whatever. But they simply look at our investment as what am I spending with Top Dog, and what is that yielding me on a cost per acquisition basis, and how much money am I making? Right, you know we've even done it in their home turf in Alabama because it's just so profitable for them and for us. It's like, why why wouldn't we do this? And so for us, there's really a couple things that keep us happy. And you should be doing this whether you're partnered with us or whether you're getting referrals from somebody else is the intake center. We moved away from law firms that don't have an intake process, right? You have to have some designated part of your staff, whether that's five employees, 10 employees, or like Shannara has 140 employees, right? You have to have a call center um, because we need to have accurate data and reporting on how many leads are we sending you a month? What uh, amount of those leads do you want? What amount of those do you sign? And what's that conversion percentage, right? So you have to have the intake data is probably my number one pet peeve. If we can't get that data, then the relationship just doesn't work. The second thing that's super important is the average case value. I mean, like we talked about earlier, different firms monetize cases differently. I tend to like the firms that file a lot of lawsuits. Now, the states are very different on that. You know, I I grew up in Pennsylvania and my beginning of my legal practice was in Philadelphia. So that's a tort threshold state. And I'm really familiar with tort threshold states like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, where over 50% of car accident cases are going into suit, you might say, oh, that sucks, that's a huge operational expense, but the values are good. Whereas there's other states where lawyers, frankly, have gotten kind of lazy and they wanna short settle the cases after six months, nine months, you know, a year. And I understand how that might be profitable for them, But when we're investing our money in our joint operation, our best partners are looking to litigate cases. And we see that average fee number a lot higher on the firms that tend to file more lawsuits. And I have no problem on our end waiting two, three, four years. I mean, we just had three settlements: one of 9 million, one of 10 million, one of 16 million. All of those cases took three years or more. I have no issue with that because I know that those law firms were maximizing the value of those cases and taking the case either to trial or right up to the courtroom steps. And you're always going to get more value at the courtroom steps than you do a year before trial. It's just the reality.
1: Now I got to jump on what you just said here, right? So you said a 9 million, I believe what 15 million. So we're talking big numbers, right? So James, there's this thought that advertising agencies can't get the big cases right? So, so what would you say against It's kind of controversial. They think that, hey, only the big cases come from referrals. What have you seen? Because you've clearly proven that, no, that's not true. You can advertise and you can originate these giant cases.
0: So I actually think there's a little bit of truth to that. I think that the big cases come through brand. Now, when we go into a partnership with a law firm, we're advertising through the top dog brand. Um, and so- we're using a brand to get those cases and traditional media that's top of mind awareness buses billboards radio tv that generates this brand that when an accident happens they're not looking on google they're not sitting around on social media a month and a half after the accident clicking on an ad about making you know x dollars on a car accident right those big big cases Them and their immediate family knows they need a lawyer. And often it's the lawyer that they remember from the mass advertising that gets those calls. Um, And then those mass advertisers will sometimes, and I would say almost usually, then refer that case to the catastrophic trial firm that specializes in it. So what I would say to that point is I think there's truth in the type of marketing you're doing has an impact on whether or not you're getting the seven or eight figure cases. But it's not that those cases don't go to advertisers. It's that they often go to the the big brands that either that person, a friend, a family member knows. And then those brands either do the cases in-house or for us, we have the luxury of working with those top tier trial firms and really maximizing the value of the case, which let's be honest, is the best thing for the client because um, there are some perverse incentives here where a mass advertiser might say, "Hey, we can take this case that's worth fifteen million. We can do it in house for eight million, and we can make a, a bigger fee than if we refer it." Where and check my math there. I don't. I don't do public math, but but you know some version of that, right? Where instead for us. We're going to refer it. We're going to refer it to the law firm that's going to maximize the value of the case. And in turn, that's going to put a lot more money in the client's pocket.
1: It's just a numbers game, too, right? You get those asynchronous bets, they come in, you know, eventually with volume. So you're in Atlanta, Chicago, New York, Philly. Everyone talks about how good Georgia and the Atlanta market is, you know, besides just the competition you know, how do you look at these different markets and approach them from, uh, hey, I'm going to invest capital here? How do you think about the market selection?
0: Like a lot of things I've just learned from trial and error. You know, I wish I would have been more strategic from day one, but our first market we went into after our early success in Philadelphia was Baltimore because Maryland is an hour and a half uh, away from Philadelphia, I was already getting some spillover calls from Baltimore. So it was like, hey, why don't we be more proactive of trying to see what's going on in Baltimore? And I'll be honest, I was attracted by there not being very many mass advertisers there. And what I had to learn the hard way was the reason there were not a lot of mass advertisers there was because the case values were bad. I mean, the, the case values. The average settlement results in gross attorneys' fees of you know three thousand to five thousand dollars, right? Which is a ecosystem problem. And you know, it wasn't just one partner we worked with there. We actually went through four, and we saw very consistent data regarding the settlement values. And when the adjusters are used to paying a certain amount, the, the treatment ecosystem isn't there in terms of working up the cases. It becomes very, very challenging um, to get those high average settlement fees. Um, But then you look at a state like Georgia or Florida where the ecosystem is really developed. The insurance adjusters are used to paying policy limits. And you can take a case in Georgia, and if there's a $25,000 policy, which is the minimum policy there, there's a good chance you're getting that policy within six months if the client has some injuries. And that's why there are eight to 10 firms spending $10 million or more in Georgia. And so what I've had to learn the hard way, which is sort of counterintuitive, is usually if there is a lot of mass advertising there, it's probably a good sign that it's a lucrative market and to not necessarily run away from those markets, um, but instead lean into it. But obviously it's a balance, right? You want to know like, Which markets can you be successful in versus which markets is there a lot of competition versus which markets are the values high? And what I think is funny is a lot of times people try to apply the same reasoning to every market, right? So a law firm that runs a pre-suit model in Georgia or Florida would not be successful running that same pre-suit model in Pennsylvania or New York or New Jersey or Michigan. Why? Because there's torque thresholds. If you can't litigate the cases, you're not going to be able to win in those markets with the tort threshold because a too high of a percentage of the cases are going to need to go to suit, and you're just not going to be built that way. And so, I think it's important in masterminds and you know events when we talk about the markets to really understand that all the personal injury markets are very different, and that's based on the laws, that's based on the uh, ecosystem of treatment providers. Um, it's based on a lot of factors.
1: Man, that is so different. I was, I was thinking about myself, like I, in the agency space. They always tell you like, find the smallest niche, right? And I'm thinking like, look, I'm not going to make a bunch of money in basket weaving niche. You know, it's like the legal's got money. I know it's a bloodbath of competition, but like there's a reason for that. So then it it, kind of leans into that in the same capacity for you. It's like there's a ton of competition in Georgia for a reason. Like it's worth going into that market. And if there's not a lot of competition, I don't know, like maybe it is kind of a race to the bottom scenario. Not to say that, you know, efficiencies and all these things can help with profit margins and different types of arbitrage, you know, international labor things, driving down your costs to make money.
0: Well, you probably see it in SEO, right? Like some markets, you can can generate cases for your clients at X dollars. And in some markets, it might be double that cost or triple that cost. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even if it's double the cost to acquire a case, it doesn't mean it's less profitable because the cases could be worth double or more in that market.
1: Absolutely. When we're looking at like, just from a Google Ads perspective, something like Florida, you know, you're targeting like below 4K, right? Or California, 6K. But then other states, it's like, hey, you can originate some cases through Google Ads for a thousand bucks. You know, the value may not be as high. So all different strategies there. You know, the other thing too is, here's this thing I see is, you know, you've got firms that maybe don't have the capital and want to kind of be this national type firm and they don't really have the strategy to go into it and they're actually doing quite well in their main market how do you look at like diminishing returns right so you've got atl chicago new york philly all these different markets how do you look at a market and say my dollar is it just purely the data you've got the data nailed down and it's like hey I'm increasing my advertising, but look, my cases aren't really increasing, so I new, move it to a different market. How do you think about diminishing returns when you have multiple markets to select from?
0: I think the first thing about diminishing returns is looking at your original market or your home market. I know we've seen this where um, we spent, you know, several million dollars in Philadelphia, and we keep increasing, and the reason why is because you know. That's our home market, right? That's our home field. Go, go, Eagles. You know, hopefully we'll win the Super Bowl this year. But it's like, I, I want to always be that force in Philadelphia, but I'd be lying to myself if I didn't also know that every additional adver- advertising dollar doesn't go as far, right? Like, eventually you put in more and more money, but you're not getting cases at the same rate as you were before. And so, you can either continue to increase and try to find new innovative advertising strategies within your market, or you can do what we did and we can look at some new markets and the potential of new markets. Now, the way I like to look at new markets, and if you're familiar with Facebook ads, you'll probably resonate with this, is the best people at Facebook advertising do tons of split testing. You put up an ad, you use six different captions or calls to action. And then you put a small amount of money towards each one and you figure out where your winners are. And we've tried to do that obviously on a little bit of a larger scale, but with the markets so that we test out markets and we can look at a new market as an experiment. And maybe we're in that market and we're putting up you know, $50,000 and our partners putting up $50,000 and we can evaluate the data in terms of, well, how many leads are we getting for this? What's our cost per acquisition? If our partner has financial data on what those cases might be worth to them, we can use that to evaluate it. And then with that data, right? Like with the cost per lead, cost per acquisition, duration, so time on desk, fall off rate and average case value, you can start to see the picture, even before the cases start to settle, of what are your unit economics going to look like in that market? And you can compare that to other markets. And so, like for us, you know, we're heavily invested in Chicago. And part of the reason why is our brand is just doing really well there. People are resonating with our brand, they're resonating with our marketing, they're resonating with our messaging. We're seeing that in our cost per lead, we're seeing that in our cost per acquisition. Um, and so, we're like, hey, you know, out of a couple of markets we tested, this seems to be going pretty well. Why don't we keep putting, you know, more and more money into the winners and either not put any more money or even pull the losers.
1: When it comes to advertising channels, James emphasizes creativity over budget. He shares how producing viral billboards and representing an influencer artist early on allowed Top Dog Law to build brand awareness and stand out.
0: So we got our start on social media, and I and I feel really fortunate that our social media stuff worked because I was broke. I didn't have any money. Um, you know, I was twenty eight years old. I, I didn't grow up in a in a house that had a lot of money. I took one hundred and eighty seven thousand um, dollars, which was from sales commissions selling uh, pay per click and SEO to lawyers. Funny enough, and I and I basically took that in a combination of debt and. Uh, started my law firm. And so, you know, with that kind of a budget, when you got to get office space and your initial staff and it does, it doesn't go very far. And so we use social media and I, and I still think this is a good strategy, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or whatever to, and as well, as well as your personal network, right? Everybody has a personal network. Everybody has their friends, their family, kids they went to college with, their hometown buddies, you can hang up. We we hung out flyers on telephone poles, right? All the beginning cases were all free or close to free. They didn't cost any money, and um, I think still today we could run a really profitable operation in my home city, which is Philadelphia. But you know, wherever you're a lawyer, your home city, just doing that and just not really having much of an advertising expense. The problem is the scalability as well as the predictability of new clients um, obviously isn't as strong as when you move into advertising and so for us we we got into paid social media and then after paid social media ads we got into radio and billboards and buses and all the things to kind of be top of mind in that market. Um, The problem that I think you're alluding to, which is an important one, is attribution, right? So we're doing SEO. um, We're doing all these different mediums. Well, how do you try to determine where leads are coming from so you can measure your marketing efficiency per channel? And Chris Collins, who's on our team, has really helped me build out like UTM parameters. I'm good at the big ideas. I'm less uh, skilled at the, the details, and you got to hire people around you that are good at the things you're not good at. And um, he really helped us dial in our attribution across our different channels, um, so that you can see our winners. But I do also use instinct as well. Like, like I'll give you an example: is billboards. When we try to measure our return on investment from billboards, the ROI, the cost per per case is terrible. I mean, it's, you know, five grand or so, something, maybe even more than that. And uh, I keep buying them. <laughs> and the reason why I keep buying them is because I, I just think there's a lot of our word of mouth referrals, our referrals from friends and family, uh, maybe even people that are marking other channels. So radio or social on how they heard of us. They're also seeing our billboards and that brand presence in the market I don't think is an ego thing i know a lot of people think it's like an ego thing or think about it. i think it's a top of mind awareness strategy and i think that money is well spent now obviously you need to know how to um, negotiate good deals with the different billboard companies in your market i mean if you don't know what you're doing they're going to fleece you for three times the rate that i'm paying right like or or somebody who buys a ton of them pay um so you really have to understand Traditional media is a lot more about negotiation than digital media. Digital media, you plug your card into Google or Facebook and they just whack you with you know transactions every $900 or whatever. But when you buy traditional media, you really have to learn how that works. And it's it's still very relationship-driven and negotiation-driven. And so I believe in investing in traditional media um, e- again even if the cpas are higher or even if you know we can't even see our return as profitable on the billboards i'm, I'm still doing it because the instinctually i just believe that it that it's a good strategy
1: you and uh, ted turner would get along really well <laughs> you know since since you mentioned that so I, I, a couple questions here I'll follow up on that the first one is thinking about the the short-term versus long-term orientation like when you choose a channel like how long do you give say radio or t or tv or billboards to work like what type of time span you know I, I i work with some clients right they're like oh we shut off our tv and i'm like what like after three months like you need to give it a lot a lot more time i, t- I heard kyle Backus says you know put that money aside and don't think about it for a year you know when you're looking at these different and, and i know like look there's this direct response versus brand which which by the way i think is way overused. I I think it's just in general attention arbitrage. You know, how do you think about how long to invest in a certain type of channel? Like you just said, hey, I'm doing billboards. I don't know.
0: 5K, I'm going to keep adding. I think one thing that not a lot of lawyers think of, and and if you got a pen and pencil or you're driving in the car, this might be the one thing you want to write down is your creative matters just as much or more than the media channel. And so instead of saying, oh, I'm going to shut off radio, it doesn't work, or I'm going to shut off TV, it doesn't work, maybe your commercial just sucks. And unless you've gone through a dozen iterations of TV commercials and measured how they perform against each other, I think you're making a bad decision by saying the channel doesn't work. Obviously, it's working for some law firms. I mean, it's, you know, legal category is a huge spender. We're not doing that if it's unprofitable, right? We're, we're doing it because it works. So um, I think a lot of times people are quick to pull the plug on the channel when it's really that the creative doesn't work. And we've learned this more than anything with social media ads, you know, on, on Facebook or on Instagram. I run tons of ads and some of them do terrible. And I'm not in my head going, I'm never going to run Facebook ads again. I'm going to say something was wrong with this ad. It was either the targeting was off or it was either the messaging was off. It was, you know, some part of it was not hitting. And if you iterate and iterate and iterate and iterate enough, you'll find a winner. And the good part is once you have your winner, you can just scale that thing. Like like all the work gets done to find the winner. And once you have that winning ad, you can let it ride for years.
1: I think that's such an amazing piece of advice. I, uh, I'm going to like be shipping this podcast to a lot of my clients in particular about SEO and other things they're doing. You know, uh, on the kind of final question set here, I want to talk about something that's a little different. I had Dan Morgan on earlier and we talked about earned Media. And he has this Purple Cow meeting where they talk about getting the attention from the media. And I I think actually you do earn media instinctively and just very, very well, right? So you've got the giant phone on the billboards, like the prop. You've got your kind of fun with the big bag of money. And the you just take a different approach. And even your radios, you've had... Customers think they're a song, like because they're so good, the quality, you know, how do you think about earned media and like that, the reshares and people talking about your brand? Like what goes into that process?
0: I listened to that episode with Dan and and it was actually super insightful. I I love all the episodes of your podcast. I think attorneys are missing out if they're not kind of going through the archives of what you have because you've had such amazing people as guests here. I would say... I got a lot of my early exposure from earned media. Again, I didn't have money. So when you don't have money, you have to use creativity. I was lucky enough to, to represent a big time rapper influencer in Philly. And I got a lot of notoriety from that. And that just opened my mind to dollars are one way to get attention, right? Is to just blast the market with dollars. But another way to get more attention is to be creative. We put up a billboard for the World Series when the Phillies were hosting the Astros and it was the day of game one in Philly. And that billboard said, um, had a sign, but the Astros stole it. And that billboard got you know plastered across every social media site ESPN CNN all this stuff right and that was just one little idea i had bought that billboard location and then i had a brainstorming session with my marketing department we were like let's do this like this is funny like this is going to get viral attention especially if you're just starting out or you don't have the budget right now to commit to you know millions of dollars in marketing spend what you do have is your creativity and if you can come up with something that you think will go viral either on social media or viral in the real, real world right those strategies are often more effective than the people with the money
1: yeah and one of the one of the ones uh, these viral strategies that you told me about that I just love was the half court shot So you're at a basketball you know bat big basketball tournament a lot of attention and you're like hey let's let's do a, a half court shot.
0: I have. We should uh, jam out one time. I have all sorts of ideas, some of which we've executed, (laughs) some of which we haven't even done. Um, But just you know, thinking about lawyer marketing, um, obviously until the late seventies or whenever the ruling came down, there was nobody advertising. Then it went to yellow pages. Then it went to TV. But a lot of the TV ads are are pretty much the same, and um, you know they're they're stern looking lawyers standing in front of libraries giving the same cliche type sentences right of like you're in tight, get the maximum compensation and it's like if your marketing is just an echo chamber if it just blends into all the other commercials um nobody's really going to remember it that much and if, if you can instead think about like how can i look at this differently I think you'll be much more effective with, with fewer dollars. Like it, it won't cost you as much on a per lead basis if you're more creative in your the substance of your content because buying the spots is just one part of it. What you're doing with your allotted time or with your social media posts or with your ads, that's as big a driver as the actual media.
1: Thanks so much to James for sharing his wisdom today. Let's hit the takeaways. Time for the pinpoints. Specialize based on your business model. Few firms can be the best at advertising, maximizing case value, and litigating complex cases. Pick one focus area and partner with firms that complement the rest of the process. Consider referring big cases to top trial firms to maximize client value over law firm fees.
0: But it's hard, I've learned over time, to run the full gamut, right? To be an amazing advertiser, to maximize your car accidents for 25,000 average gross fee, and to be able to take those top five percentage of your cases where you're getting that 8 million, 10 million, 15 million dollar settlement, and you have those lawyers that can litigate those catastrophic injury cases in-house. There's very few firms across the spectrum that can do all of those things
1: track everything know your case value track metrics like average fee per case cost to acquire a client time a case sits on the desk and the percentage of cases that result in no revenue understanding your profit margins and risk factors allows you to determine how much you can reinvest into acquiring new clients while still being profitable
0: as long as you can manage that duration risk you can start to see okay i can reinvest in new cases profitably and The problem that a lot of law firms run into, traditional law firms, is they can't just reinvest in new case acquisition because of their operational capacity, right? They can't do the cases. Why? Because they don't have the intake staff. They don't have the paralegals. They don't have the lawyers. All of those different parts of the firm need to grow at the same time to be able to grow in capacity. Keep the referral partners happy. How do you do that?
1: Build out your intake capabilities, and organize intake process with call center software and designated staff is crucial for referral firms to provide accurate lead data and reporting. Tracking metrics like calls received, signed cases, and conversion rates keeps national advertisers happy and the relationship strong. Intake is a top priority for partners like Top Dog Law. For
0: us, there's really a couple things that keep us happy and you should be doing this whether you're partnered with us or whether you're getting referrals from somebody else. Is- the intake center, right? Uh, we moved away from law firms that don't have an intake process, right? You have to have some designated part of your staff, whether that's five employees, 10 employees, or like Shannara has 140 employees, right? You have to have a call center um, because we need to have accurate data and reporting.
1: For more information about James Helm, check out the show notes. While you're there, follow the show so you don't miss part two of my conversation with James. He explains how to transform your intake team into a sales team of closers. Don't sleep on this one. All right, everybody. I'm Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. Thanks for hanging out. See you next time. I'm out.